Spirit Box podcast, exploring folklore, esoterica, and the mysteries of the spirit world. I'm your host, Dara, and I invite you to join me in this exploration, from the secrets of the jinn to the whispering of demons and everything in between. Hello, hello, dear people, and welcome to episode 25. Well, I'm impressed with myself, 25 episodes. And today, we're welcoming Julian Vane to talk to us about psychedelic entities and experiences, ritual and healing. And Julian is an occultist and an author of numerous books, essays, journals, zines and articles in both the academic and esoteric press, a regular speaker at events and facilitator of retreats and workshops. His work is informed by chaos magic and lineages with Wicca and Tantra. Julian is also the co-organizer of the Psychedelic Conference, Breaking Convention, and sits on the academic board of the Journal of Psychedelic Studies. Julian facilitates psychedelic ceremony, as well as providing one-to-one psychedelic integration sessions and support. He is the author of the celebrated Getting Higher, the Manual of Psychedelic Ceremony. And since 2011, he's been sharing his work through the blog of Baphomet and is the curator of the wonderful, charming, delightful YouTube series, My Magical Thing. So today we're talking about psychedelic entities, the purpose of ritual and the importance of ritual in the relation to psychedelics and the significant case for psychedelics as medicine. This was a really fun conversation and Julian's passion for this medicine really comes true and it's, it's quite contagious. So I hope you enjoy it. I know I really did. Um, and if case you're wondering, the thumbnail art is by the visionary artist uh, Alex Gray, whose work we briefly touch on in the podcast. Now, those of you of a certain age with excellent music taste will recognize his work from the Tool album art for the album Lateralis. The links for Julian's work and for Alex Gray's work will be in the show notes below. Um, so do check them out. As always, there's an open invitation to send me your experiences. If you've seen ghosts, you have the shadow man visit you, you've experiences with gin, with fairies, with obsession. I want to hear about it. So send me send me some 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 stories. Or drop me a phone message. The links are below. If you like the show and want more Spirit Box in your life, join the Patreon and the podcast Discord. It's the price of a cup of coffee and you'll get the shows early and the host of other tremendous perks, the best perks. Um, okay, that's enough preamble. On with the show. Julian, a warm welcome to Spirit Box. Uh, really grateful to have you on board and uh, thank you for your time. So getting straight into things and looking at the experiences people have uh, with, with psychedelics, the, the, the bit that jumps out for me kind of from my uh, kind of reading on, 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 the, on the subject matter, predictably enough, is Terence McKenna and that kind of um, that phrase he made famous, the, the machine elves. And I want to kind of open that um, to you, kind of what are the machine elves? Who are the machine elves? 
what the hell is he talking about for our, our listeners who may not be experienced in this domain? Okay, Dara. Well, thank, thank you very much for inviting me onto the podcast. Um, Terence McKenna, there he is. I can't really do the voice. The machine elves of hyperspace. Um, bless That's him. pretty good. good um, yeah, we only got a chance to like chat chat on one occasion. He had dreadful hay fever, as I remember it. But anyway, that's an aside. Um, the, the machine elves of hyperspace. I mean, I guess, you know, uh, what are we talking about? Machine elves of hyperspace. So there is a sense for many people, particularly when they take things like NN-dimethyltryptamine um, or to some extent um, uh, orally active forms of that, like uh, ayahuasca, where they encounter things which are um, have, a, have a quality or as though they are um, constructed. Uh, so there's a, it, because these are highly visual psychedelics, there's a sense that this, um, that we're seeing a machine or a, um, a mechanism of some description. So I guess that's the kind of mechanical bit. Uh, elves, because I guess uh, Terence having an ancestry uh, in uh, Ireland, uh, uh, there's, it's one of those tropes to draw on from European kind of cultures, right. plenty of other things you could have um, drawn from. But those entities which are in this kind of tricky liminal space you know are they goodies are they baddies are they are they just mischievous beings um so perhaps there's an element uh, kind of in that and uh hyperspace i guess because we have a sense that that um in those states of awareness we're in uh, a space which is um kind of uh, above or beyond or, or or exist in some other relationship to the kind of the reality that we generally kind of occupy now, the, the question about like ontologically, what are those things we can pick apart in all kinds of different ways? Um, I think for me, you know, my, the, the direction I come at this stuff from is that my um, practice, my, my lineage, if you like, is within the kind of the, the esoteric, the occult kind of uh, tradition. Um, and so what I tend to think of them is, is rather like there's a, there's a bit in one of Alistair Crowley's books um, where he says, in this book are spoken of many things, paths and spheres and angels and beings. And whether those things exist or not is perhaps relatively immaterial. What matters is that by doing certain things, certain results follow. And I think that the subjective experience of encountering what appears to be a radical other, which usually has a teaching of some description, even if the teaching is you're not meant to be here, boy, or here's a funny thing to kind of, you know, come in at 90 degrees to the rest of your reality. Um, the experience of meeting the other uh, is the fundamental stuff that matters. And then the kind of the secondary question about the ontological existence of these things is, is very much uh, a, an interesting thing to kind of play with and to explore. But what really matters is what happens in that communication? What happens in that interaction? Yeah, so I'm currently experiencing you as a bunch of pixels on a screen. You're relatively small. You're on a tripod in my living room is where you actually are. That's how you're perceive, I'm perceiving you. Um, but of course, in order for us to have a conversation, I have to imagine that there is a, uh, you know, there's Darren Mason Field, an intelligent, thoughtful human being with his own backstory. He's trying to communicate something to me. So from the, my point of view, rather than perceiving just a bunch of pixels, I'm perceiving like an other yeah, that arises into my awareness. And it's from that that we have valuable interactions, which could be um, discovery of uh, problem solving. Uh, it could be healing. Uh, it could be kind of some kind of mystical insight. Um, uh, th there could be any number of things that might flow from that interaction. Um, but, but for me, as an occultist, privileging the 
subjective truth of the interaction in its own terms is really important. And then we can kind of pick about the, the, the psychology and the different mechanisms that we could have to understand what, what you know, where do these beings arise and what, what might their, uh, their status kind of be. But it's the conversation that is really important. And that's usually the thing that ultimately people kind of take away from the experience. You know, you, we can't really know what happens in the ayahuasca session, you know, what these beings may or may not be. But we can see their effects in terms of the interaction and in terms of the subsequent uh, behaviors that person might exhibit in the world on the basis of what they've learned from that spirit encounter thank you i'm i'm that's there's a huge amount to, to unpack there and and i i guess the 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 first bit i think that that jumped out to me there was the idea of, of the conversation now i know i kind of i know a lot of people who have say and partake in, in uh, a psychoactive substance maybe not in a ritual setting uh, maybe in the kind of the comfort of their own home or or something like that where they would have had um interaction but not necessarily a conversation um and have come back with kind of you know startled amazement at, at kind of what they've seen but maybe not necessarily a, a conversation um and yeah maybe, okay that's that's a good that's a good point i mean when i talk about conversation i suppose what i mean is like a, a meaningful interaction between kind mm. of like separate beings and often mm. you're right in the psychedelic state i mean i've had um experiences where you know the entities turn up and they say i remember one time uh taking ayahuasca um uh in a a, a beautiful kind of uh a, a rural kind of uh setting just me and another friend and we'd sort of hiked somewhere and we'd taken the ayahuasca and there was a point at which the the entities, which as is traditional in some of these things, look like kind of weird mantis things, mm. went, um, just lie down now, we're gonna upgrade your software, is what they actually said. Uh, and <laughs> and they went down inside me and like stuff happened and, and you know, I, I thought they did a good thing, I mean, I don't really know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, That's there so was cool. a sense of like, a, like more like a, it's pr probably better to describe it perhaps as a teaching rather than, rather than a, yeah. a true conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, cause that, that was, I guess the, 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 the other side of my question was, um, within that kind of the learning period and the kind of the, the, the kind of not being there just as an observer slightly in shock, but I know you combine an, um, kind of magical practice with with psychedelics um and i mean going back to terence mckenna his whole thing was um there's many ways to achieve this altered state and to kind of have this communication you know all of them take a lot of time and a lot of effort they're kind of you know meditating in a war in a waterfall the the fasting the the, the drumming the the pain you know you can bypass all of that you know uh, and get straight to the straight to the point um as it were but you're combining both um can you tell me about that okay so so i think that you know we know that psychedelics um create a state of mind which is very plastic it's very able to be um uh, influenced in a variety of different ways and we also know very clearly from both um kind of indigenous knowledge and uh, from entheogenic cultures with long lineage and also from uh, relatively recent you know 20th century science but the set and setting, the mindset we bring to the thing and the environment in which the thing unfolds is, is of, of, is of uh, great importance. You know, things like the Good Friday experiment, you get a bunch of theology students, you give them um, psilocybin, you get them to listen to the, uh, um, uh, the Good Friday service, they all have these kind of, you know, very, very powerful mystical experiences. You get people taking mushrooms in other different settings, they will have other kinds of experiences dependent on the setting. 
So um, I, I, I kind of take Terence's point that, you know, that the use of um, psychedelics, which has always been part of the, the esoteric tradition, including yeah. in the, the West, you know, there's a, there's a lovely book published a year or two ago, Libra 420 by Chris Bennett, which kind of really unpacks a lot of this stuff. You know, it's part of the Western magical lineage as well as is part of the um, story that you'd find in um, North and South America and, and, and India and so on. But to frame uh, the experience, um, whether or not we've, uh, that is something that looks like, for example, the peyote circle of the Native American church, which is, you know, that's a phenethylamine chemical, it's peyote, it's the peyote medicine, it's very pro-social, it's done in a group, there's a, there's, there's a drum rhythm and it's the classic drum rhythm of like hardcore techno played through the night, just like dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum, that's the only rhythm. There's like a lot of prayerful interaction. There's a lot of kind of like uh, group cohesion. And that's part of the purpose of that ritual. Whereas, although we can have kind of communal ayahuasca rituals that you might have with say the UDV or the Santa Dini church, we also have the whole model of, you know, you take the medicine, you go and sit, you go and lie down in a hammock with the sound of the jungle or in the modern idiom, you take the medicine, you put on the eye shades, you get the playlist, and you just kind of the medicine is sort of folded back in and on, on itself and the person goes on their you know very sort of personal very introspective kind of journey perhaps with yeah something like one of the one of the tryptamines mm. and of course there's all kinds of variation with that you know and all sorts of differences depending on the dosage level we use the, the uh, material we use and the context that we use um and i think that when we talk about ritual human beings are naturally ritual uh ritual making kind of creatures yeah we, we 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 take plant sex organs and we give them to people that we love yeah so we take flowers and we give them to people that we love and we take the same bits of bits of plants and we, we give them to people who are dead yeah who we're grieving for and uh you know up until pa the recent pandemic we would shake each other by the hands as a greeting like we're ritual mm. um doing meaning making creatures and so when we drop a psychedelic into somebody's uh, brain what we can do is in order to um facilitate the way that substance is going to unfold we can do that by making meaning in terms of the way the session is is constructed and we can kind of take things in lots of different directions and a lot of the techniques of ritual don't they don't have to look like some kind of you know quasi shamanic native american whatever kind of thing they're techniques that we actually have um implicit within our behavior so when we um when we toast someone, when we, when, we, when we drink a toast to someone and we wish someone well and we kind of bring our attention to the, you know, the glass of wine or whatever we have, that's very different from just sipping our glass of wine with, with our meal. When we take the mushrooms, if we take the mushrooms, for example, and we sit for a moment with the mushrooms in our hands and we speak to the mushrooms, just like we would with a trusted friend, we say, oh, you know, teacher mushrooms, I'm really grateful that you're here. I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to to interact with you and to be with you. I'm looking for, you know, a good, uh, powerful, revealing journey for me, you know, um, and uh, uh, I appreciate you being here. Now that puts a very different spin on it from just kind of gobbling up a couple of pills while you're in the club. Mm. Again, nothing wrong with that necessarily, but, it, mm. it, but by bringing that attention into what we're doing, Equally, when we come to the end of the trip, we come to the end of the thing and we think that oh, I'm a bit hungry now. So, OK, so you get the food and you make the food. You're just a bit more conscious about the food. You know, you place the food in front of you for a moment, just like you did the mushrooms. 
seven hours ago and you you say okay so i'm really i'm going to be very mindful very thoughtful about the way i about this food and i don't have to invoke a god or a goddess or a magic spirit or anything i just have to go i'm really expressing my gratitude for this food thinking about how it's come to me you know what its connection is and then i eat the food yeah so i remember being in i took part in a, a licensed psilocybin trial at uh, king's college hospital in london um a couple of years back and uh so there were six of us who were all being dosed with either a placebo or 10 or 25 milligrams of synthetic psilocybin and i, I was very pleased i lucked out and got 25 milligrams uh, or at least i'm pretty sure i did it was all you know double blind testing i'm fairly certain that's what happened um and i remember at the end of that experience for me as a ritual practitioner i got to the point where i thought oh, i'll have some water so i could have just had a sip of water that, there's nothing wrong with that but what i did was i held the water and i held the water and i wished for good clean water for all people on this planet and i sprinkled a little bit of water just on the on, on the floor you know, just a couple of drips, just to kind of make an offering of it. And then I drank the water. Yeah. So all I'm doing is I'm bringing um, a, a certain way of approaching the medicine and approaching the whole of the experience. And that's, I guess, what I mean by ritual, what I mean by ceremony. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And it, it's, and you can see as well as that, that, that does change the setting as well for people, you know, it kind of, it, it alters their mindset before they even take part as uh, i mean it's also it also says just like good advice you yeah, know yeah yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's like, like hey guy appreciate the moment if you've got this yeah. this magical substance which is mm -hmm. capable of of it's put it in neurological language so mm -hmm. it's capable of turning down the default mode network and revealing these mm -hmm. new novel connections in the mind mm -hmm. which can lead to entertaining cross wiring so the optical bits in the brain and the audio tracking bits in the brain connect and that means you might get like beautiful fractal images or, or dreamlike stuff in response to the music for example and you also get novel thoughts you get novel metaphors and understanding um which can pop up and depending on what you're bringing into that story um they can it can even be answered to very pragmatic questions so you know the rna polymerized reaction which is used amongst other things to test for the presence of virus that's an insight gained by somebody tripping on acid yeah so who was who you know was working in that field saw this thing and thought oh i can see how you could do this you know so those insights which if someone's going in with post-traumatic stress disorder they come to a new understanding of their trauma mm -hmm. uh, a new insight a new metaphor to hold that mm -hmm. because of this novel brain state that the the, the, the medicine creates that's a powerful and amazing thing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we can, we can do this recreationally with our friends. And, and, and again, the border between where recreation, therapy, insight, mystical experiences is very, very fluid, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but really just appreciating it and, and paying attention to it, I think is kind of, you know, mm -hmm. what I like to do. And I, I, I think it's, it's helpful for a lot of people. Yeah, no, I, I, can, I can really see that. And I kind of like certainly look talking to, I mean, for want of a better word, talking to kind of like normie friends, um, where you, you, the perception of of plant medicines and like like this and and, and and chemical medicines of this persuasion is very much one that is negative. It's very much kind of it's the classic kind of tabloid story. Someone thought they could fly, jumped off a roof, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, um, 
but the potential for medicine is absolutely huge. Like, uh, and beyond the, the, the insights component that you, you, you spoke about, because there's lots of famous cases for that. I mean, um, wasn't it, I mean I'm, I'm going to show my complete lack of memory now, but was it the, the whole perception of, of, of DNA originally? Uh, that was, that yeah, no, the Watson Crick one is probably not probably not, not the case no. the yeah yeah that's it's a lovely folk story is it great. <laughs> probably enough. not yeah. but the rna polymerized reaction is definitely yeah. the case and there was also some research done uh, a few years back in london um bringing people who were um mathematicians uh engineers and so on and asking them to take uh, they were using lsd as part of the problem solving process and trying right. to find like where was the sweet spot and the answer would appear to be 75 micrograms of lsd is what you want so not so much that the whole of the place is melting and everything's really weird and you can't yeah. remember why you're there and not so little that it's just gnarly and annoying. Yeah. But there's a, there's a, a, a sweet spot within that. And those, that problem solving is the same behavior that people exhibit when they go and um, uh, go into the therapeutic use of this stuff. So um, a friend of mine, a guy called Ben Sessa, who's, who works with um, pr predominantly with MDMA, Yes. Um, and yeah, so he's working with most recently with people with chronic alcoholism. Mm -hmm. um, and he and I were having kind of conversations about this because what he was finding was even with MDMA, which is not typically imagined as a very visionary psychedelic, mm -hmm. people who are going into the therapeutic process, and of course they've had all the preparation, all the interaction with yeah. the therapists and all of that stuff to create a good yeah. set in a good setting they'll often have like really powerful visual experiences of, of interacting with, you know, um, ancestors, mythological beings from their own kind of um, uh, their, their own kind of psychic um, framework. Mm -hmm. um, and it's those kind of insights. It's those insights, which are often expressed as a metaphor um, that allow the healing to take place. There's a really good example in one of the, um, maps um, the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies videos with a guy who was a, a veteran from iraq i think it was and he talked about how on mdma he went down into a basement in his imagination and he saw down there uh, a creature with red eyes and this guy had had ptsd very serious ptsd treatment resistant ptsd um and he, one of his symptoms was outbursts of rage outbursts of uncontrollable rage and he went down into this cellar and he saw this creature which had the red eyes, which of course was emblematic of his rage. And he kind of knew this at the time. And he interacted with the creature and eventually embraced the creature and kind of came to a new uh, accord with it. That led to him being healed. So the idea that what you're doing is you're going into a psychedelic state. You have a novel set of neuronal connections that you don't normally have. You're out of the, the rut of your kind of standard issue waking ego identity default mode network state um and this new connection which at a neurological level is synapses link linking and interacting that don't normally and at a cognitive level is the discovery of ah right so my rage is like a part of me and it's hidden away and that's the problem and i need to cope i need to kind of actually embrace it and by doing so I can then integrate this into my life in a much better way. Or another example um, uh, from, from uh, another piece of work with MDMA was a guy who, you know, serious addictive problems and would kind of go off into one particular part of the house and would kind of, you know, uh, um, you know indulge in his particular addiction. And, and, and of course, addictions are just ways of trying to mitigate suffering. That's what an addiction is. You know, if you, if, 
if people don't know this, they should check out a thing called the Rat Park experiment, which is very, very instructive in terms of why addiction happens and what it's all about. So this guy would go off and go uh, drinking in this particular bit of his house. And his metaphor was that he'd gone through the MDMA experience and he'd installed a skylight in his man cave. Yeah, so he'd installed in his head, that was his metaphor. It's like, ah, I can still have this place of retreat, but now I can make it open to the world. And that led to him no longer drinking. So the, the problem solving, yeah, whether or not the problem is um, a, a, uh, an engineering problem, whether or not it's a, a problem of, of difficulties with relationship, internal or external, that's one of the things that psychedelics can give us. And that's why we need to make sure that they're available for clinicians. You know, we're in a, we are in this situation where um, these things are heavily legislated against in many cultures at the moment. We're also in a situation, fortunately, where that's changing very rapidly. We're also in a situation, of course, which is quite a little blip. Yeah. A lot of this stuff. I mean, I'm trying to, I was trying to, I think that I'm right in saying that in Britain, medical cannabis was only made uh, illegal in something like 1972. So like this is all recent. Yeah, this is this has not been like this forever by any stretch of the imagination. You know, we are, we are unusual and we're unusual because um, that whole thing about, you know, Nixon's war on drugs, which was actually a war on the emerging feminist movement, black power movement, anti-Vietnam movement. Right. That's what it was about. There's nothing about people jumping out of windows. Sure, bad stuff sometimes happens. Mm -hmm. People can have problems with these substances just like they can with anything else. But they are also incredibly safe. Psilocybin, mm -hmm. you can't eat enough of it to kill you. You physically couldn't get it in your body. There's no known LD50 of it, lethal dose 50. It's like, you know, it's, it's very, very, very safe. You know, as, as people often say, as David Nutt famously said, you know, things like paracetamol, horse riding and so on, far more dangerous than these substances yeah. are. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's, that's a really good perspective to, to hold on on this isn't it it's, it's, a, it's a good one to, to to educate people on um because as i said it's just that the, the the perception is this heavily propagandized view that that these things are potentially lethal these things will cause kind of permanent mental damage um and it's just simply not the case it's yeah. just it's not just simply not the case yeah. yeah i mean sure these things make you uh, these substances make you, uh, they, they, you know, they change your relationship with the world in a very, very powerful way, potentially. And so the settings in which we use them need to be kind of considered and we need to be thoughtful about the way we use them. But to be honest, you know, in Britain, we get through, I mean, some estimates, some reasonable estimates, we get through 25,000 kilos of MDMA every year um, in Britain, just in Britain. Right. So that's like 175 million doses, at about 200 milligrams or something like this. You know, it's, it's really lots, lots and lots and lots. Mm. The number of people who end up with a any sort of significant problem from that, mm. even a kind of a secondary problem um, from, I don't know, you know, uh, famously overheating or drinking too much water or, I don't know, falling over and hurt. It's, it's really small. It's very, very small. And compared to things like alcohol and tobacco, it's 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 frankly insignificant minuscule the history of the illegality of psychedelics is very much the history of um in particular the american um fear of the kind of cultural shifts that were happening in the late 20th century and it's driven by that 
it's driven by that it's not driven by empirical evidence it's not driven by um historical precedent and it's not driven by you know anecdotally what seems to happen to the vast majority of people the vast majority of the time mm. and and to to that point you know what what is the legal situation now you mentioned kind of um it medical trials i mean is that being re- reflected in in laws is there is there inroads in in changing the the system at the moment? Uh, no i mean certainly in britain ever since um i'm trying to think when it was something like 2015 2016 we had a thing you know there was the um uh novel psychoactives bill which basically meant that everything everything that can get you high is by default illegal if you are using it to get high unless it's alcohol tobacco or caffeine right so um uh, frankincense for example frankincense is a mood lifting substance now in principle in britain the situation is if i walk into um uh, uh, you know a herbalist and i say i'd like some frankincense please if i were to say to the person behind the counter oh and by the way what i'm going to do is i'm going to burn a big load of this so that i feel a bit more happy in principle they would be criminally liable if they then sold me the frankincense if i go into it and say actually i'm a catholic priest and i'm going to be using it in my, my rituals or I'm, I'm a i'm a pagan i'm going to be using it. in principle that would be fine you know and um you know i was quite i i remember reading all the government legislation and the various papers that were brought in to kind of talk about this there were four models that proposed and the government chose the most draconian model and of course the problem with that what they were trying to address was was um spice they were trying to address the uh cannabinoid uh mimic chemicals that were being that undoubtedly causing loads of problems frankly the easiest way of dealing with that would have been simply to decriminalize cannabis but actually what they did unsurprisingly was that they drove prices up they drove the business underground they drove the um, quality of the products uh, into this kind of, you know, black market area and, and more suffering has resulted from that. On the other side of the equation, the trial that I was part of um, was a licensed medical trial. And at the moment, the last time I looked, the trajectory was that within maybe kind of three, four years, we would have uh, psilocybin treatment for um, treatment resistant depression that that therapy would be available on the NHS within kind of three, four years, something like this. That's part of the reason that they were scaled, they were trying to scale it up. Like, can we give this to like six people all at the same time in a ward, in a hospital ward? Uh, and the answer is yes. And the other thing that they did was they did what, from my point of view, is a ceremony. So they did like they, they introduced everyone. You know, you got to meet the person who you were sitting with. They, you know, they kind of went through the thing about like, is it cool? You know, if you're worried, it's all right if I touch you on the arm. Yes, that's fine. Thank you very much. They lowered all the lights. We had like kind of fake LED candles and like, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, very sort of um, abstract, but very easy on the eye kind of hangings in the room. So it didn't look like a hospital ward rugs on the floor so that the sound was all different ambient music but also music on the headphones they did it beautifully and if that means that people who don't go and hang out with ayahuasqueros in south america or don't go raving or whatever if those people can get access to that medicine and good clinicians and the people i was with were totally absolutely sound you know people who knew the story very familiar with it very good if people can get access to that healing that's going to be really valuable particularly at a time in our 
global history where as a result of the pandemic, there's going to be a lot of PTSD out there, a lot of PTSD out there. You know, basically anyone who's been working for the health service globally over the last few months, um, many of those people have got very difficult stories to tell. And many of those people who've been on lockdown in, I don't know, you know, with their difficult relationship at the top of a tower block somewhere in a city. That's going to be really hard. And so to unpick those things and to help those people, you know, having that stuff available in a license framework is going to be essential. But, you know, I'm, I'm an advocate of a post-prohibition world. We can't, you can't prohibit these, these substances. And that includes also things like cocaine, heroin, all of that stuff. You've got to deal with it in a much more adult, much more open, much more honest way as a, a health and a cultural issue rather than a criminal issue. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a it's a very strong stance, and it's it's a reasonable one. That's I think that's the bit that really just confused me. It's like I, everything you said is entirely reasonable, and and but beyond that, it's it's also data led, you know. It, it, and that's that's a really key thing. You know, it's not an opinion. This is data led, you know. Um, so it it's so disappointing to hear kind of when when kind of um. The powers that be take decisions like that that um are just simply not reading the evidence i mean i guess i guess i i take i take heart in the fact that um that radical cultural change is definitely possible if you look in the united states even over a, you know some periods where there's been a a, a great rise in you know, various things that one might not like so much um the uh decriminalization process um for uh, cannabis uh, and in some American states and, and, and jurisdictions uh, decriminalization of other kind of entheogenic plants that's happening you know places like Portugal have got a uh, decriminalized um, position on just you know uh, uh, all drugs so I mean you know, you, you can uh, whilst there are still kind of you know there's there's cultural uncertainty and there's a lot of kind of ways of you know we have to think about how we deal with this Portugal had to to change its policy because it had so much of a problem with uh, cocaine use and, and, and opiate deaths that it was obvious that the prohibition policy simply was not working and, it, and people were dying and, and it was creating huge amounts of suffering. So you have to go, well, you know, even in situations, say in, in Britain, where the legislation is still kind of relatively um, repressive, these things will change. You know, like I was born in 1968, you know, the year before I was born, male homosexuality was decriminalized in Britain. Like that was a sea change that flew in the face of vast amounts of like religious and cultural change, but was also, um, it was a wave that was rising and it was something that was going to happen in culture. And I like to think that the uh, changes in drug law will uh, likewise follow suit. Yeah, yeah I, absolutely. And we, I, I hope so. I mean, I grew up in Catholic Ireland. You know, like, um, I mean, we were literally 20 years behind you guys when, <laughs> when it comes to kind of um, what just seemed like ludicrous things now, you know, um, just absurd. But they were, um, you know, illegal. Your sexuality could be illegal, you know. Um, I mean, I think some of it is just going to be people kind of, um, it, these substances, uh, especially when we're talking about psychedelics, they're, they're increasingly kind of part of culture. They're kind of like, then they're, they're known, they're referenced in like TV and they're kind of part of the discourse. 
and um, there are undoubtedly people who are uh, still very uh, concerned about those things um, and you can you can address some of that with data you can address some of that with like reasoned argument you can address some of that with like personal views but frankly you can just wait till people die and then you can kind of go you know that to be honest that's how a lot of stuff as a lot of social change happens, it's, it's totally know? totally reasonable like, yeah you know yeah. ideas going to culture mm. like oh, perhaps it'd be good to not be racist that might be nice do you know what I mean and and, and yeah. you know it, eventually people of like say my children's generation who are kind of mm. teenagers now it's like that's just yeah that stuff is just crazy talk like yeah yeah, yeah. you know um so so getting those kind of cultural shifts happening uh, it may seem like a long time from the point of view of one lifetime but looked at you know panning back yeah um it's a then, blip then yeah yeah it's a blip yeah uh, that's 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 it's really interesting um and uh it's it's a it's it's a it's a pleasing feeling to to acknowledge it as a blip, you know. Um, so, one of the things that I'm really keen to get your 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 view on, I know we touched that at the start of the conversation, but but the beings that people interact with, and really just to get your thoughts on you know what they are. We we I've heard loads of stories about the kind of the DMT experience, the kind of teriotropic figures that people have, and um, you know feelings of being consumed by crocodiles that the, the, the prevalence of, of reptile beings all this kind of stuff it's a really mm. rich tapestry there um yeah what 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 is it julian i <laughs> uh, may i don't know i mean first thing is i don't know yeah the second thing is that my 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 current thoughts on the matter um are that okay so when let's imagine that you take uh i don't know for argument's sake yeah one of the highly visual ones ayahuasca or dmt firstly it's interesting to note how in those highly visual things because we're a visual creature those of us who are sighted get 70 percent of our information about the world from sight and so when we are shown a thing we are more likely to believe a thing than when we just feel a thing or we hear a thing yeah so the visual ones are the ones that people always go on about although the encounters with uh beings or like feelings of the other or like presence can happen just as easily within salvia or 5-meo dmt or uh, in the therapeutic context clearly it can happen with mdma um i think what those things are is that they are um they are uh let's call them spirits for the, for the purposes of the exercise but what what they are rooted in is they are rooted in the biology of us so deeply that they are more real than our individual uh, consciousness is. Now, what I mean by that is if you think about the entities that are encountered, firstly, they tend to be uh, um, vertically symmetrical, uh, uh, often hominid-like creatures. Now, you and I, as people who are sighted, the first thing that we understand in the world is the face of our caregiver. So we understand these two eyes and this mouth, right? So that ability to recognize a face, which we can do by looking at the flames in the hearth or the clouds in the sky, we are geared up to see faces. And so when these novel connections happen in the brain and then they arise into awareness, one of the things that we're very often very likely to perceive is a, is a face, is a being, and to accord agency to that thing. Now, what also we have in our brains is we have systems in our brain that are very responsive to things like non-mammalian movement. So scuttling things and sinuous moving things, those are things that as a monkey, we're designed to go, whoa, that's important. 
we're, we're, it's very important that we recognize things that are shiny. It's very important we recognize things that are like eyes or like liquid. And so we have all this kind of structure in our biology, in the biology of our bodies, where there are, uh, if you like, modules within the brain that uh, kind of ping uh, agency, uh, entityhood, and attention. Yeah. So they kind of go, oh, here's a thing. I should pay attention to this. Um, so in a sense, what I think spirits are is they are, uh, they're kind of deep processes which you could sort of look at as a, like archetypes but they're at they're kind of they're sort of almost deeper than that uh because they're they're rooted in our fundamental biology and they arise as these other beings in order very often to communicate something to us now that's not the same as saying that they are not real yeah they are real they are more real than your consciousness is in the same way that an archetype you know an archetype is a psychological expression of a physiological fact. There's physiological facts like women have babies, right? So the great mother or the, the ancient wise person or the hero or the child, these are all physiological facts and they're more real than you and I are. We just happen to be the current incarnation of that underlying structure. And so in the psychedelic state, what we do is we encounter those underlying structures. So to give you an example of this, there's a book called um, the, uh, the Masks of God there's a, uh, uh, by uh, Joseph Campbell, great mythographer. And he gives an example of uh, that if you have a chick, if you have a baby chick, uh, if uh, a hawk passes over the baby chick, the baby chick hunkers down and gets really still because it knows that a predator is there. And Campbell writes, if all the hawks in the world were to disappear tomorrow, the shadow of the hawk would still sleep in the soul of the chick. So the hawk lives deep inside the biology of the chick. And if the chick were tripping and the chick, chick were having an interaction with a powerful radical other that would seem to be predatory in the same way that the jaguar or the rain or the, um, the anaconda might be in an ayahuasca trip, the chick would have a trip involving a hawk. Yeah because that's what its biology is geared up to do. If you and I were starf starfish, we'd, we'd encounter starfish-shaped entities or entities that were part of the lineage, the ancient history of that life form. But because we're hominids, we tend to encounter things that are a bit hominid-like, like an elf, for example. Yeah? Now, the spirit is, is um, the way I would describe it is a spirit is a complex set of interactions which arise in perception in that moment into an apparent other with which we can have an interaction. So you are a complex set of interactions that I'm currently experiencing as a bunch of digital data arising into my awareness in what appears to be an other so we can have an interaction. Yeah. So this is not the same as saying that they are not real. And it's not the same as saying that they come from an alien world. It's actually like saying these things are all here all the time, continuously present. And what happens in the psychedelic state is that they become kind of revealed to us in some sense so that we can have this kind of interaction with those beings. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. And, and like uh, it, it kind of reminds me of... Um, I mean, it's. Uh, I'm looking at it from a much more simplistic and far less eloquent the way than you've just described. But um, that that whole idea of of the the brain being a receiver, and that a substance, you know, it, it 
basically changes your your bandwidth what you, what you can perceive what you can kind of interact and engage with um yeah. and uh i mean certainly some of the i mean going back to kind of the, the therian tropic figures like the, the part man part part animal part the I mean, what we have in mythology, the, the, the minotaurs, the centaurs, all that kind of stuff. The bit that really kind of just blows my mind is these things were appearing on the walls of caves. You know, these things were, were painted on the walls of caves by, by our, 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 our ancestors from deep antiquity. And it's, it's to your point, there they are. You know, the very first expressions of human art and human creativity are describing these things, you know. Um, it's incredible. They're, they're, they're incredibly ancient. If you think mm. about something like, um, you know, you go into, uh, I mean, I, I've, I've had this. I remember, um, oh, I don't know, like a few years back, like having a having a um, an ayahuasca experience where, um, you know, it, it, a kind of classic thing, I suppose. I came across this entity, and the entity was, um, uh, it was kind of almost emblematic of the. Uh, the shame that I carry inside myself, you know, both kind of personal stuff that I don't feel like I've done well in and also kind of cultural stuff. You know, I'm living here in the British Isles, you know, okay, my ancestors like working class folks, but nevertheless part of an entity that went and predated on the rest of the planet and did bad, bad stuff. So this entity appeared that was emblematic of my shame. How did the entity appear? Well, firstly, it was vertically, uh, you know, bilaterally symmetrical. So it was kind of like a like an animal, it's like a thing, but it was like this kind of weird lobstery kind of strange. So it was it was um, it was a being, but it was also not a, it was not mammalian. It was like other, and part of my interaction in that process was to kind of find a way of like being with this thing and kind of interacting with it in such a way that we could come, I could come to some uh, new metaphorical way of holding this experience. So. Uh, the entity looked like a kind of, I don't know, like a strange mashup of, uh, you know, crab meets mantis meets, you know, decaying piece of meat or something. Yeah. So the entity, the shame is real. Yeah. The, 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 that experience is the real kind of thing. Um, and what my mind does is in that moment of interaction and that possibility of learning, um, the spirit is kind of... Uh, the spirit of shame is filtered through all the perceptual architecture of my mind and it pops out in a form that I, as a piece of hominid biology, I'm going to pay attention to. Mm. So it's got like weird crab claws and it's got lots of weird eyes and it's got a mouth and it's looking at me, you know, um, and I know this. Uh, and so the, the form in which it arises can be culturally determined. It might mm. be elves for some people, aliens for others, you know, um, theriomorphic forms for other kind of people so there'll be little details about that um, but then there'll be structural similarities oh well look it you know it seemed to have arms it seemed to have eyes it appeared to have a mouth that kind of stuff mm -hmm. and then beyond that there's that you go into the kind of the deeper sort of territory of um, the way that we as hominids respond to various forms and at the root of it is this real thing this real experience of say you know me as a, a person sitting there feeling the kind of the the ancestral cultural shame or difficulty of my nation of my people of my individual self and therefore the opportunity to do something about that to find some new mm -hmm. way of understanding that ideally for the benefit of me and everybody else yeah 
Mm -hmm. So that's that's kind of the way I think of those things. Yeah. So it's not it's not an either or. It's not yeah. like they're all just in your head, or it's like uh, they're actually in some kind of like Stargate spirit world that you mm -hmm. go to. It's actually that these things are here all the time. And in the psychedelic state, they arise through this perceptual net into something that we can engage with. Mm -hmm. And and that bit is the important bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm I, yeah, I, I, that it makes a lot of sense. And um and, and that description that um that that description kind of reminds me of that kind of state the idea of like the relationship between the observer and the observed, you know, and that this thing this intelligence or is observing us and it's preparing itself into forms that we would understand and be able to kind of symbolically read yeah yeah i mean you take take the example of eyes i mean it's incredibly common for people when they're um let's say they've taken uh, uh, nndmt mm. entities with lots of eyes well why is that well eyes are incredibly important if you're a human i mean humans are very unusual mammals because you can see the whites of our eyes which is if you think back through all the other animals you can think of mm -hmm. it's inc that's very very rare why is that well it's important that humans can see we perceive the eyes in the way that we do because it's important for me to know where you're looking mm -hmm. yeah so as humans we do lots of signaling with our eyes we roll our eyes we mm -hmm. blink our eyes and we kind of you can see what someone's looking mm -hmm. at we're in mass massively attuned to eyes if we are a creature that got most of its information from smell mm -hmm. we would expect to have uh, these kind of psychedelic visions would appear as odor mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. but because we're kind of these visual beings and we're prepped up for eyes you know, you go through the Irrawid accounts, the Psychonaut Wiki accounts, and just just count how many times it's like. And then I then it opened its eye and blah 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 blah. <laughs> or there was loads of eyes floating around. Or you go and look at the work of Alex Gray, and you look at all those amazing yeah, yeah. pictures with all of these eyes. Mm -hmm. And that's because of the kind of beast we are. And that's mm -hmm. what, if you like the the spirit, the spirit beings, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, in their in their deep deep uh, positions. It's almost like they emerge and as they emerge they go right so what's lurking around here in this monkey's head right okay it, it digs eyes mm. brilliant Bolt, bolts of eyes on that all right it's going to be freaked out by tentacles let's get some tentacles out, the, out, out of its reptilian <laughs> brain and get those fantastic right then let's make it look like a hominid but then let's stick a like a like a bull's head on it marvelous you know that'll get its attention that'll get the message through yeah, uh, yeah, I, I love it. I love it. Um, my uh, again, one of the things that springs to mind is that that idea of something preparing uh, symbols and and or metaphors or or, or even communicating things that uh, to the individual that the individual can culturally place that has cultural context for the individual, even when they were geographically born on the earth. Like that's the thing that really strikes me about, you know, spirit interaction or fairy interaction or alien interaction or cryptid interaction or, 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 or gin interaction. You know, like, like a lot of kind of the, the, the work that I've been doing is trying to correlate kind of fairies and gin off the back of kind of just my own work. But hang on, that's exactly the same thing. But these things are appearing in a totally cultural specific way, exhibiting the same behaviors and having, a lot of the same taboos around them, but appear that in a way that's culturally relevant. And, and, and a lot of the similar effects. So things like time dilation, you go and you go, you go underneath a fairy hill, mm -hmm. you might think you've been there for a day, but actually that yeah. may not be the case. Yeah. And we know that time dilation is one of the classic things that you get with any psychedelic state, whether that's arrived at through breath work, whether that's arrived at through, um, you know, any, any number of different substances. 
so we can see these similarities in like mm -hmm. you know well, what happens when we enter these kind of all these these altered states of awareness mm -hmm. uh, and we encounter these um these things and i think it's also interesting when we start to look at um substances and experience that are that are perhaps less visual and and still having but it can still give us a really profound sense of a something so uh terence mckenna i think I only know of one very brief reference where he talks about 5-MeO-DMT, the, the stuff that, you know, appears in, in um, organic sources, primarily in the, the, the venom of the um, Sonoran Desert Toad. And he kind of says, oh, yeah, it's like this. And he, it's not really his thing. You can kind of tell he's like he's much more interested in the eye candy. And that's cool. You know, it's yeah. his thing, whatever. <laughs> um, but 5-MeO-DMT, people talk about it as being this non-dual state and various other things. Certainly my experience of it as well is that you is that there's a sense that you're plugging into a kind of um, a kind of uh, like, to use a Terence McKenna phrase like the ecology of souls so that there's this kind of continuous arising of awareness and all the multiple forms of awareness that that, mm -hmm. that implies or if you take something like uh, ketamine people often with ketamine they may not encounter so frequently entities but they'll, often, they'll, they'll, they'll sometimes get to a place where they have a sense that they are they're not alone. They're part of like this, you know, infinitely large space con uh, comprising all of these minds or some kind of computer like or or um, for those who remember Tron movie style, you know, uh, lines of interaction between things. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just most noticeable uh, mm -hmm. with with certain tryptamines. But um, I think that the. The other thing that I was saying about the, the ritual is that in ritual, what we can do is we can utilize the fact that this is part of our behavior. This is part of our simian behavior. You know, the, the biggest processing bits of our brains are not the bits that process kind of uh, logical linear stuff. They're actually the bits that process social interaction because it's the most important thing we have. And so if we can utilize those and piggyback on those by taking the medicine, taking the mushrooms before we're tripping and interacting with them as though they are a person. Yeah. Not again, not in a big deal. It doesn't have to be like in a special cultural way. You just talk to it like, okay, mushrooms, right. Just for the purpose. And you can, you can call it a mind hack or whatever you want, however you want to frame it. You go mushrooms. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you my question. I'm going to speak to you like a trusted friend. And then I'm going to take the mushrooms and I'm going to hope for a journey that allows me to unfold whatever it is I'm unfolding. So we deliberately use the hominid social way that we interact with each other, the way I'm interacting with all the pixels on this screen right now. Yeah. Uh, and we do this all the time. You know, we, we're, we're such a, a deeply social being. When you go to a movie and you watch people, you know, in the movie doing stuff and you can see them talking, you can't see them talking. The sounds coming out the speakers at the back of the room. They're not talking. Your brain joins it together because you're used to people talking yeah so with the mushrooms held in your hand before the ceremony activate that hominid circuit of social interaction there and then when you're in this the situation you're in the the the, the, the experience interact with those things in that kind of a way you know don't spend your time going i wonder if this is ontologically real i mean that's you know what's the point of that that's like staring at the film and going this isn't really people actually doing something. This is just a bunch of light and shadow in a darkened room. And the, that's not how we work. 
you know so yeah. you kind of actively use that and that's what, what i mean by like ritual it's like you take these behaviors that are normal and that are given and are part of our human um birthright mm -hmm. and however works for you you build that into what you're going to do with uh, with the medicine wonderfully put wonderfully put and and i'm conscious of time so to so to wrap up i i just want to kind of uh compliment you on the wonderful youtube series you have uh, my magical thing which i i i follow with earnest it's absolutely fantastic would you like to tell the listeners a, a little bit about it yeah i mean it was it was one of those kind of like side projects i didn't really it's kind of weird because i work in museums and galleries and stuff so i spend a lot of time working with mm. objects and and helping people like access their history and their story and mm -hmm. like how do we engage with these things and it was kind of a lockdown project that sort of spiraled out of control um so i just basically thought well i'll i'll, I'll just do this kind of brief thing where I, I contact you know friends or people that i hadn't spoken with before but would mm -hmm. like to and ask to see one of their magical things and it was only kind of down through some of the shows that a couple of people pointed out to me i think it was um uh one person uh pointed out that this is actually quite an interesting kind of slice through contemporary occulture, psychedelic mm. culture, whatever you want to call it. So it's a bit of an, a bit of an, uh, a sort of an ethro ethnography, anthropology mm. thing. And it's also, I guess, about, like if you say to somebody, uh, so what does, what's your practice? What is it you do? You kind of get a rather boring stock answer of, well, I do meditation and then I kind of, you know, at certain times I'll do a ritual and it's like this. And it just kind of doesn't really get you very far. Mm. But if you say to someone, tell me about this object tell me about the story why does this matter to you hmm. you get a lot more information out of that you know it's like um again as as human beings when we put something between us we put something between like you and me and we both talk about the thing we reveal a lot more about who we are than if we just set up that one-to-one -one kind of conversation mm -hmm. yeah and you can this is how things like tarot cards and lots of other processes mm -hmm. work where we have something we can stand back from and reflect mm -hmm. And then by, by that kind of dialogue process, we get all these interesting teachings. Mm -hmm. And there's been some fantastic things. I mean, it's lighthearted, it's fun, it's mm -hmm. relatively short, um, most of the films, but there's actually some really deep stuff going on in it. So I it really think it's is. really good to do. Yeah, there really is. And, and there's some just, it, it's lovely to see the objects that mean things to people, you know, um, and and as you said, the stories around them are, are, are really wonderful and they're very revealing. Like they, they, I mean, much to your point, you know, a lot of the descriptions of what's your practice, we'd get a variation of, of, of the same thing, you know. Um, but the meaning that people have to these objects, what they think personally mean to them, what, what's been, I guess, revealed to them through, through these objects is, is all wonderful stuff. And yeah, I, I really enjoy it. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. And I do recommend all listeners to go and subscribe to Julian's channel. I'll put the links below. It's a fantastic show and, a, and, and long may it continue. Um, Julian, I'm conscious of time. I'm, I've just had a fantastic time talking to you. It's been, it's been a great hour. The hours whizzed by. Um, I, hopefully we can get you back again at some stage and, and, and have another chat. Um, where's the best place for people to find you? Probably the easiest thing is uh, there's a blog that I've been running since about 2011 called the blog of Baphomet.com. And there's loads and loads of articles by me and various other people on that. If you look on the sidebar, there's links to like I've got like an online um, teaching site that I uh, the, uh, and, and various other kind of things that, that I that I do that people might be interested in, you know, books and all that sort of uh, shiz. 
Uh, I mean, check out the, the blog site is probably the easiest one. And, you know, if people are nice and friendly and all that kind of stuff, they can find me on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and, you know, all the usual stuff. Yeah, awesome. Julian, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on Spirit Box. Dara, thank you so much for inviting me. Really appreciate it, man. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you, Julian. I really enjoyed that. I love how Julian explained why he believed this intelligence reveals itself in the way it does from the basic archetypes that have deep symbolic meaning to us at our core to simple biological indicators of, of meaning that allow us to recognize other life forms, intelligent life forms. There's such a lot to take from that explanation that can be used to look at the other related phenomena, such as the cryptids we discussed in last week's show. I, I mean, imagine how pure meaning and consciousness without material form would communicate. Imagine being outside of linear time and trying to express an idea or just make contact to a form of life locked into it. What would it do to make the process of interaction and communication more accessible? Would it reveal the medicine within a, a vine, a mushroom, or a cacti? Perhaps nudge them along to eat, drink, or smoke this sacred soma and bring them into their world where time doesn't exist, where language is symbols and symbols is meaning, and in the process, terrify them, heal them, and inspire them. And isn't it interesting that all those components that make up the reported psychedelic experiences both during and after, sounds so familiar to the alien and fairy encounter, the time distortion, the terror, the healing, the inspiration. Food for thought. Literally food for thought. Okay, that's it from me. Talk soon. <laughs>